This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 66, February the 24th, 1984. We have with us today not only R.E. McMaster, Otto Scott, but also John Lofton. Now, John Lofton uh, is somebody I hear about all the time from some of you because people who go to Washington, D.C., write me a letter or sometimes telephone me and say, do you know what I found when I was in Washington, D.C. and bought a paper? There was a column there by this man who indulges in plain speech I've never heard in the press or who talks as a Christian. And uh, I didn't know anybody did that. And, of course, I hear the same thing when John is on radio and on television. John Lofton writes a column three times a week for the Washington Times, of which he is an editor. He does a a six-day-a-week commentary for Mutual Radio Network and is a contributing editor to the Conservative Digest magazine. Now, John tells me he is also a member in good standing of the American Society for the (coughs) Conservation of Gravity. However, I suspect he is the founding father of the organization, and I'm going to line up and be uh, one of the members because it's obviously a worthy cause, John, is it not? Well, it certainly is. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time with only 58 minutes left, so there'll be no time to discuss the... Gravity, but but it is our most rapidly uh, depleting resource, <laughs> with increasing space shots and tall buildings and <laughs> countless numbers of elevator trips. Uh, it, it we're losing it at a frightening rate. We have a federal agency plan to take care of that problem. Undoubtedly, a, a, in which case, ten years from now, the gravity crisis will be twice as bad. <laughs> you better speak to Mondale about it. Oh yeah, <laughs> will they charge for gravity? Do you think? It'll be rationed each according to uh, his height, because if you're shorter, you use less well, gravity. Let's not get off of Well, Ma- I hear Mondale's antagonist to gravity because he's never had his feet on the ground anyway. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. I thought you said he was an economist. I don't want him to be funnier than I am, though. Although looks isn't everything, Ari. Mm. Well, John, how is it uh, living in the midst of the circus there in Washington? Well, it's... Uh, it's fun, but uh, it's uh, very difficult <coughs> sometimes to avoid being dragged into one of the rings. <laughs> <laughs> Although I do live outside of Washington, D.C., a little bit, about 20 miles in Laurel, Maryland, so that's where I get my perspective. Mm-hmm. John, you've tangled with some of the uh, leading liberals of this country. <laughs> Whatever that means, right, I have. <laughs> What's your general impression of the liberal morale today? One uh, man in politics, a conservative, told me a while back that there is a growing uh, uneasiness and insecurity among them, that they all have battle diarrhea. Would you like (laughs) to comment on that? (laughs) Well, I think I can confirm that they have at least uh, a battle (coughs) diarrhea. Uh, I think... uh, They're destroyed. They don't have anywhere to go. They don't longer, of course, call themselves liberals. They're progressive now, so they're even lying about what they are. I think the fact that the situation regarding liberalism is the way it is increases uh, uh, my own uh, sadness over the weakness of uh, 
conservatism because this this is really this was I'm thinking particularly in terms of the 1980 election when of course Ronald Reagan was elected what carried 44 states scores uh, or not scores but uh, most of the major leading liberal senators were defeated it was the, it was liberalism's Waterloo it's Tet offensive I mean they were all on the roads with their belongings going in a thousand different directions that was a time uh, of course to attack and uh, Mr. Reagan did not attack his agenda has been so weak it's been uh, so inadequate to the task and it's very sad because I, I don't think there is any liberalism there anymore we have two candidates who are both notable for their inability to see issues how do you uh, assess the picture there as far as the election is concerned? Well, I think if, if Walter Mondale is the candidate of the Democratic Party, uh, that Ronald Reagan will demolish him, that it may be a landslide as large or even larger, uh, although Mondale will probably sweep the District of Columbia, uh, Reagan would probably carry 49 states. Unless the economy d uh, does something drastic. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I was thinking more in terms of if the election were held today. Yes. Because I know you wouldn't ask a question. Mm -hmm. uh, what if it was held months away? Because uh, what you just said might happen, could very easily happen. How have the hardcore conservatives, especially the Christian conservatives in... Uh, Washington reacted to this betrayal of the Republican Party's platform pledges and Reagan's campaigning. Well, to say it's disillusioning is to really grossly understate the reaction. Many of the issues which Ronald Reagan deals with as President of the United States, he does not... Uh, deal with them as an interested party, so to speak. He, in other words, he deals with a lot of issues where, as far as those issues relate to himself, they're pretty much of an abstraction. But as regards the Christian community, presumably Ronald Reagan, one would think, would deal with them as a Christian. This is something that he is. He is a brother in Christ of other Christians. And that's why it's been such a bitter disappointment to me that he has literally done nothing about his brothers in Christ who are in jail in Nebraska. Now for the first time he did mention it in a speech before the National Religious Broadcasters, but it was a typical politician's handling of the issue. Uh, I don't have his exact uh, phraseology in front of me, but it was something to the effect that, gee, he certainly hopes that the state and these Christians can work out something uh, because he hates to see people in jail for what they believe is right was the construction he put on it. Mm -hmm. Well, what I want to know is does Mr. Reagan believe they're right? Uh, and if he does, and he, he appears to believe that the Christians are correct, then why is he asking them to work out something with the state? Because you and I know that when Christians work out something with the state, it reminds me of the old saying every man for himself said the elephant as he danced among the chickens <laughs> when the yes. state works out <laughs> something with a Christian it usually means uh, that uh, the state has the gun to the Christian's head and you don't have to be Gene Dixon to know what the outcome of that is going to be John I was 
I was there in Washington in March 1980, just following the inauguration, and one of the things that bothered me immensely then was that Reagan sat back in California and allowed so much of the Washington Republican establishment and the Eastern establishment make key appointments to key positions to run this administration, and basically he's been one that's delegated authority, decision-making, and responsibility. And, and that, to me, has been the trend of this entire administration. Well, it certainly has. Uh, when I was the editor of the Conservative <coughs> Digest one month into the Reagan administration, one month, 30 days after the man's hand came off the Bible at his inauguration, I wrote an open letter to Ronald Reagan which said, in effect, Dear Mr. President, your mandate for change is in danger of being subverted because you are appointing scores of people to very important positions throughout your government who are not Reaganites, who are not conservatives, who not only have never lifted a finger to help you get elected, sir, but many of them worked against you. That many of them spent a large part of their political lives trying to deny you the White House. The bottom line was that there would be no Reaganism without Reaganites, that people mm -hmm. are policy. And uh, I knew that Mr. Reagan is a reactor. He is not an actor. He signs off on other people's ideas and proposals. He may uh, chew the carpet. He may roll on the floor. He may throw his glasses. But he is the kind of guy that swallows and checks the little box on the memo. Listen to him when he explained, or tried to explain, the largest tax increase in history, which he signed off on. He said repeatedly publicly that he didn't like it, that it was tough medicine to swallow. Well, there are one or two things you can do when you have something in your mouth that you don't like. You can swallow it, or you can spit it out. And Mr. Reagan has not spit out any of the bad medicine that's been put in his mouth. He has swallowed all of it. One other aspect. It seemed to me that Ronald Reagan was far more comfortable in the Hollywood aspect of Washington, D.C., the pomp and circumstance than he was in, in the tough, philosophical, nitty-gritty of establishing policy during an era of conflict. Well, once again, uh, I mean, you're, uh, that dovetails with my uh, assessment of Mr. Reagan, and, and it is not a pleasant thing to talk about. Uh, I have wanted Ronald Reagan to be president since 1968. I would appreciate it very much if no one here pressed me on that point <laughs> as to why, uh, uh, but I did. And uh, uh, I, I did not do it, though, with the complete hope that he would, of course, be everything he said he was going to be, because those of us who have known and watched Mr. Reagan for all these years know that uh, he has always talked a better fight than he has actually performed when he got into the ring, but he is not a, a person who's terribly engaged in this job. Uh, he is a delegator, and as a management style, I don't have any problem with that, but it's very important that the people that you delegate to are people who are your people, who share your views. That's, that's why, again, I wrote early on that uh, Mr. Reagan runs a very loose ship, and when that's true, it matters greatly what the crew thinks, because Mr. Reagan is going to be down in the captain's hold or up in it, wherever it is. I was not in the service, so those members of the Navy are listening to this. The ship, I called it probably. Boat. Big boat. <laughs> the pointy end of the boat. Uh, Mr. Reagan is in his cabin. Uh, he, he, does, he rarely comes on deck if uh, there's a loud noise or if the cabin's filling up with water. He may mosey up there <laughs> or if there's and, a say, and say, you know, if any of you uh, have time at some future date and would like to 
write me a note as to what caused this. <laughs> I would like to see it, but it's not urgent. I mean, he's a very laid-back, disengaged guy. And uh, uh, when other people are running the show and they're not your people, uh, you have a severe problem. Indeed, when you're president, the country has a severe problem. Uh, two things. <clears throat> One, like Robert Kennedy putting the American flag in his lapel when he wanted the presidential nomination coming out for law and order, Mr. Reagan has trimmed his sails to the religious winds. In speaking to the religious broadcasters, and according to the accounts I read, he brought them up to a standing ovation. Mm-hmm. Several. And, uh, several. And the other point is that when trends develop in a country from the bottom up, as they have here in conservative terms, there was, for instance, in Mexico a 10 or a 15-year period when the revolution was consistently represented by men who didn't believe in the revolution. Mm. And they betrayed their followers one after the other and were discarded one after the other. Mm -hmm. until, they finally, until finally the movement stopped trying to preempt men from the uh, existing governing class and began to throw up leaders from within their own ranks. And it occurs to me that this has been the basic fallacy of the conservative movement so far. It has gone out and it's tapped uh, Goldwater's shoulder. It, ta it accepted Nixon. It uh, was willing to accept Ford. Uh, it went out and tapped Mr. Reagan, but it has not thrown up its own leaders. You know, I'm really uh, sitting here feeling very good and, and smiling because you can't imagine what it's like to be sitting here and uh, Rush has already spoken and Ari spoke and uh, Otto spoke. And I'm going to say after what Otto just said, what I've just said after what you said, Ari, and that is, I agree with you. I am rarely on a show, a program, where <laughs> two people speak in a row and I can say, well, that's the way I see it and I, I agree. But uh, that, that, it's a good feeling, too. Usually it's in Washington, it's on the TV, radio, very hostile environment where, of course, I agree with nobody, which constantly uh, reaffirms my own sanity. But you're absolutely <laughs> correct. And what, and what you said is what was once said to me by F. Clifton White, who was, of course, one of the uh, people uh, who was responsible for getting Goldwater to run in 1964. And what F. Clifton White said uh, was significant to me because F. Clifton White is not a rigid uh, conservative ideologue, uh, whatever exactly that is. He is not a hardcore conservative. He's been pretty much a traditional Republican who has leaned to the conservative side. He as a rule, you'd not find him in the forefront of any conservative insurgency. He would not be for, say, putting in a Reagan over a Ford. Uh, he's just not like that. But he was coming out of the executive office building, which is next to the White House, a couple of years ago, I guess. And uh, we stopped and <clears throat> chatted, and I asked him what he was doing there. And he was speaking to some of Mr. Reagan's aides. And I said, how do you think things are going? And he said, uh, not well. And I said, why? He said, and it sounds like almost exactly what you just said, and uh, the listeners must know there's no choreographing going on here. He said, this administration has in it too many mercenaries and not enough revolutionaries. Uh, my own words were, too many document stampers, too many time servers, too many resume builders, too many people who can teach that the earth is round or flat, or if you really made it worth your while, that there was no earth. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, but you know, there is a, uh, there is a point beyond which we cannot blame the AIDS. And in the last three years, uh, I have moved beyond that point. Uh, 
Jim Baker, the chief of staff, Richard Darman, Mr. Baker's aide, who is a former protege of Elliot Richardson, the liberal Republican from Massachusetts, David Gergen, former director of communications, who has now left the administration, uh, Mike Deaver, very liberal aide, uh, glorified uh, uh, coat holder for Mr. Reagan, chamber pot emptier, I guess, uh, <laughs> combination. We don't want to underplay Mike's duties. Uh, <laughs> there's only so far that you can trash these people. There, o there's only so far that you can blame them because every single person that I have just named and more who are of the liberal moderate persuasion are there because Ronald Reagan wants them there. They didn't break into the White House and put their names on the payroll. Ronald Reagan is surrounded by people that he wants to be surrounded that's by. That's right. They yeah. have prestige and status, and that seems to, to tie into his imagery in both the governorship here in California as well as his Hollywood experience. That's right. I think he is a man who Credentialitis, as you mentioned. Yes. He's very big on credentials <coughs> and experts, and I think he's very uh, uh, satisfied with the trappings of this job and the pomp and ceremony and, uh, and not terribly engaged to perhaps... In, you know, say the only understatement in this hour in his job. Your comment about mercenary strikes <coughs> me as, as ringing true because this administration has done more to subsidize with taxpayers' money big business than Carter ever dreamed about, almost double the amount, $70 billion. And it seems like the Eastern Republican establishment, in terms of the financial interests, have dominated this administration by way of, of grants to the IMF, uh, subsidies of trade to China, in communist countries far more so than we would have allowed under a liberal democrat. Well, I think you put your finger on uh, what it is that has to be watched, and that is not uh, speeches to the national religious broadcasters or, or speeches to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. You have to go around and stand at the end of the pipe and look at what's coming out. And if it's the same kind of stuff that came out of the pipe, when Jimmy Carter was in office, then would someone please tell me why we ought not to criticize it? Well, I think we should, but I think the most remarkable aspect of Reagan is that he decided that he was elected to be the United States bookkeeper <laughs> or head of the internal auditing department and completely neglected every social issue which was responsible for the coalition that put him in office. Now, Eventually, these sort of leaders lead to disillusion among the people and have a terrible effect upon the stability of a government. It is impossible, in my opinion, to uh, disillusion the people repeatedly on election after election. We voted for the conservative Mr. Nixon and found him embracing the communist Chinese and so forth and so on. And this sequence has been played out now with both Republican and Democratic candidates. Jimmy, Jimmy Carter campaigned on a conservative program and turned into a marshmallow or a killer rabbit or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this, I don't think this progression can continue forever. By the way, that's one of the things I say is the way that uh, you can tell Mr. Reagan from Mr. Carter is that Mr. Reagan has not yet been attacked by a killer rabbit. <laughs> Although it may be happening as we speak. Or a killer economy. Or a killer... Which may be the reason why he's enjoyed uh, this, uh, yes. this protection from disillusionment from his constituency. But you know, Otto, you yes. raised a very important point. I mean, I, I would like uh, uh, to think that uh, the American people, the ones who voted for Reagan, particularly religious, particularly Christian Americans, 
would uh, realize uh, that a number has in fact been done on them. Uh, I'm not at all sure of that at all. You alluded earlier to these standing ovations. That uh, disturbed me. Uh, to the president. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe it's protocol, maybe they want to be nice, maybe it's sentiment. Uh, I fear that a lot of them, a lot of Christians, a lot of our brothers in Christ are going to be, uh, what's the exact word? They're going to be fooled by these speeches. I, I just don't think being a Christian means you have to be a sucker. That doesn't oh, mean you have right. to boo, you know, that doesn't mean you have to <coughs> boo Ronald Reagan there or throw fruit at him, but uh, boy, it would be hard as a Christian to vote now for Ronald Reagan. Yes, let me tell you a little story in that connection. After Carter ran as a born-again Christian and pulled the Christian vote and people were disillusioned, then, of course, in the next election, you had Anderson and Reagan both running as born-again Christians. Well, after Reagan's election, a very fine friend, someone who listens to these tapes, was asked, he's a pastor, was asked to go and meet with the top Democrats in Virginia for a meeting in which they wanted to know what had happened to them, why had the Christians turned out as they had. And he spelled out the Christian disillusionment with the Carter administration, the Christian demand for a more godly perspective with regard to civil government. Well, that was a very promising meeting. But when Reagan promptly began to neglect the Christians and to kick them in the teeth, and two years ago, last month, introduced a bill to control the Christian schools, as radical a bill as we had ever seen, which was only defeated by a tremendous outcry from the Christian community, the Democrats then felt they could afford to neglect the issue. So you have both parties now feeling that the biggest single group in the United States, the born-again Christians, 55 million adults, represent the one element in the population that both parties feel they can neglect. Now, if the Christians continue to allow themselves to be made suckers by going on and voting for these people and these parties, they're fools. They deserve what they're going to get. But I am ready to predict that a revolt is underway, that within a year or two you're going to see a tremendous realignment of Christians in this country. Boy, I, I, hope, you're, uh, I hope you're correct. And I, I'd like to return just to something else that Otto talked about, and that was the ignoring by Ronald Reagan uh, over the last three years of these so-called social issues because uh, Christians should be very careful and very leery of the fact that these issues are being talked about quite often now by Mr. Reagan and his aides. In fact, uh, the morning of today, I woke up with White House Chief of Staff Jim Baker on the 700 Club talking all about how they're for school prayer and everything. But the fact of the matter is that for the last three years, the Reagan administration on these so-called social issues school prayer, abortion, variety of other issues, has done nothing, absolutely nothing. They have drafted no legislation. Now, Ronald Reagan <clears throat> made a speech. He, he talked about abortion in that speech to the National Religious Broadcasters. 
He talked about how the unborn baby feels pain. He talked about how many abortions occur every minute. But what has Ronald Reagan done other than make speeches denouncing abortion? You would not yes. stand before the Congress of the United States, as he did in his State of the Union, and talk about how many blacks were being lynched every minute, and we've got to do something about it, and as soon as someone sends me a bill, I'm going to sign it. That's not legislation. If you think, if you think human beings are being murdered, wouldn't you send up your own legislation to stop it? He has scores of people on the White House staff, in the Justice Department, their whole jobs, and they make forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, is to draft legislation. I sat on an interview in 1981 with this same Jim Baker, Mr. Reagan's chief of staff, the White House, who was on the 700 Club this morning, who told me that well, we can't uh, really get together and uh, uh, propose uh, anything on this abortion thing. See, we, meaning the White House, the president, because you see, the pro-life forces are divided. And I thought to myself, well, now, that's a strange idea of leadership. We can't lead these people until they're together. Well, of course, when they're together, they don't need leadership, do they? It is a divided group which, by definition, needs to be led. And Ronald Reagan should take those pro-life people. He should invite them to the White House. He should present them with copies of his own legislation to protect the unborn, which can be an amalgam of the two positions, and say, I'm going out to get lunch. I will be back in one half hour. I want you to sign on to this legislation because the most important thing is not the fundraising of one pro-life group versus another or whose view exactly about what legislation is appropriate. The most important thing is to stop the killing of the unborn babies. And, and what I'm saying is absolutely true, that Ronald Reagan has actually proposed doing nothing to stop the killing of unborn babies. He's made a lot of speeches, issued a lot of proclamations, he's going to have a book coming out now soon that's based on an article that was in the Human Life Review. But the bottom line is, what has he done to stop the killing? And the answer is, zilch. Well, exactly. here you have a very peculiar situation. I can't think of any parallel, historically speaking. Uh, you have the Democratic Party allied with the trade union movement and the media. The media operates almost as though the Democratic National Committee writes the agenda for it. Uh, we have Kennedy films coming out our ears. We have Roosevelt films coming out everywhere else. Uh, every election year, there's another pay-on to the New Deal that appears from Hollywood and on the television and so forth and so on. It seems to be that Mr. Reagan's agenda, uh, like any other individual who is shaped by the media and by the communications, and that with rare exceptions, and you're an exception, most of the people in the media believe what the media does. And they believe that the media reflects, if not America as it is, America as it should be. And the media is not concerned over abortion. They think the people who are are fanatics, uh, are Christian primitives, Roman Catholics, of which there is nothing worse, and all that sort of thing. Mr. Reagan believes what he reads. He's like the fellow that uh, Will Rogers made fun of, who said, he, all I know is what I read in the newspapers. Well, I just wish I could believe that Mr. Reagan read newspapers. <laughs> I mean, you know, I would want him to read certain newspapers and sure. not other newspapers. <clears throat> I really believe, for what it's worth, uh, which is probably not a whole lot, that Ronald Reagan, in his heart, cares greatly about these social issues. I do. I do think he cares about them. 
he went before the Conservative Political Action Conference a couple of years ago and said that he does not have different agendas, that it is not like an economic agenda and a socialist agenda. He said this is all one agenda, that I care about all these things. I think that at the moment Ronald Reagan speaks, he means exactly what he says, that we're hearing his heart talk. But the minute he walks away from the podium and goes back into that environment at the White House, he, he of course, is not ap operating is in the vacuum. Is it a failure of will like <coughs> Buchanan before the Civil War? Well, yes, clearly it is a failure of will because if I think his will is to get something done about these issues and nothing has been done and I see no real effort to get it done, well, his will is not predominating, clearly. You can't just polls a lot, see? Right. Now, now it's one thing to have someone differ with your faith. That, that kind of problem you approach from one direction. What I've never understood on the social issues is the failure of those who share our faith down there and who don't that they can't see the empirical evidence of the uh, important nature of these issues to the electorate. A couple of years ago, you had this Connecticut Mutual Life Insurance poll. Uh, Very interesting. It was, Never followed up. It was just one of those three-paragraph uh, wire service stories that appeared and then vanished off the face of the earth. What it showed, basically, this was a poll, by the way, that set out to discover what were the political things that people cared about, you know. Uh, and they were astounded to find out, the poll takers, that what 45 million Americans rated right up at the top of their concerns were not the traditional political issues at all. They were the religious, moral, culture, value type issues. It just totally freaked out the people that took the poll. So much so that I read one story that said they ran it all through the computer again. Because, uh, you well, know, in their mind, anyone that cared about God, uh, this had to be a computer glitch. We'll have to go back because what people really care about is the international balance of payments. And what it showed, money. though, was the difference between the beliefs of the governing class and the beliefs exactly. of the average person. Exactly. Now, in Buchanan's time, Buchanan occupied the White House the four years before the Civil War. The country was polarizing. The country was dividing. Mr. Buchanan refused to believe it. He thought that if he didn't take notice of this polarization, that it wouldn't lead to anything extreme. So therefore, in Alan Nevins' words, in the final years of his administration, the White House was overcome by facetiousness. They had a wave of jokes and parties and banquets and... Buchanan felt that he was creating an era of goodwill because he was a very genial and social man. Mm -hmm. hmm. And underneath him, all these forces began to move toward the surface. You're drawing that parallel with, with the Reagan administration today. Yes. Uh, another point... Well, I think he's suggesting that it's a possibility, right? You're not uh, absolutely yes. sure it's going to happen. Uh, oh, no. Uh, yeah, okay. Draw yeah. another parallel... When I lived in Southern California, I used to see very frequently a fine woman, uh, Italian and Catholic, who spent uh, part of one year in Rome. And when she came back, she gave me an account of things there. This was when Paul VI was still Pope. She said... Paul VI is a pope who has said he wants to be loved. But because he is moving in terms of that personal desire rather than the faith, 
She said the most horrifying thing in Italy was the graffiti against Paul that you would see everywhere. So Carter and Reagan have both sought to be popular, to be loved, I suspect. Mm -hmm. And they have demonstrated themselves to be ineffectual. And Carter was very much detested, and I'm afraid Reagan will be the same. Well, what can you say about an individual who comes up to you fawning all over the place, trying to ingratiate himself? Yes. John, what I hear you well, say... Of course, occasionally I like that. <laughs> you, that's so rare for you. If he kisses your foot. Well, uh, let's say the first example has yet to happen. <laughs> what Outside I, of you three guys, of course. What I hear you saying is perhaps... And is, you, Chuck. ...is that the American public, perhaps a reflection of Reagan himself, is not distinguishing between the personality of Ronald Reagan and his inaction on the issues. And furthermore... This deception runs the risk of, of being uh, an orchestrated campaign strategy into capturing the American Christian community again into supporting Ronald Reagan while deceiving them with regarding to his real actions or lack thereof with regarding to their agenda that got him elected in the first place in 1980. One of the problems with these historical parallels, of course, uh, uh, I having never lived in another age that was arguably heading toward the porcelain facility, as Johnny Carson calls it. Uh, uh, you you want to think that things are going to turn around. You want to impute a degree of uh, awareness in everybody that they're, oh, they're going to wake up, certainly. The, but certainly the, uh, in times past, uh, we know they, of course, not only did not wake up, they ran faster toward the porcelain facility for reasons which are not entirely clear, but we know where they ultimately ended up. Uh, I really wish that I felt strongly that, uh, oh, yeah, th th they are on to Reagan, and uh, I just don't feel that way at all. And uh, when I see something like those standing ovations by the religious broadcasters, uh, again, not that they had to hoot him or boo him or throw fruit at him, but uh, a very cool reception at the very least yeah. was in order because the media notices this. See, They will play the proper spin on it. Uh, I'm just not at all confident that a lot of Christians are not going to, politically speaking, be suckers and once again vote for Ronald Reagan simply because they like his smile or they liked him in Hellcats of the Navy or, or Nancy is, I mean really John, she is one of the nicest women to have been in the White House, which of course she is. But what does that all got, all got to do with anything? Or anything that Christians are supposed <laughs> to care about? Aren't we supposed to have a higher standard? Don't we have a different yardstick? I thought we do. That's why I became one. Well, let me throw out something. Uh, Two illustrations. One, I was told by people who had spent some time in Britain that the people there voted for Margaret Thatcher because they were afraid of any more socialism. They did not want any less socialism. Mm -hmm. They didn't want any more. They wanted uh, the status quo. No boat rocking. Then here in California, we had a very improbable governor, Jerry Brown. <laughs> That's a wonderful and, adjective. Uh, <laughs> uh, and before both elections, it amazed me that anyone would vote for him because you didn't hear anyone sure. really <laughs> in favor of him, and people would laugh and say, he's a flake. I asked someone <laughs> in Sacramento, prominent in politics, 
why Jerry Brown was winning so readily. And he said, you've got to realize the average voter wants a flake or a lightweight, somebody who isn't going to rock the boat. And that was Jerry Brown, except for very bad appointments to the bench. He did next to nothing. And uh, this was his popularity. He lost because the state was going bankrupt and they had to have somebody to do something because the Democratic legislature was really running the show and doing it badly. Let me ask you a question. What would you say to somebody who would say, well, now, of course I'm going to vote for Reagan, but the reason is because I don't think this politics thing means anything. It's the old George Wallace line about <laughs> there's not a dime's worth of difference between the parties. If, if it's true that you know, adjusted for inflation, there's even less difference now, <laughs> uh, then why not vote for the guy with a nice smile who made good movies and has a nice wife? Why not? Why not, Rush? Why not do that? What does it matter? You have a competition in niceness between yeah, Mr. Sure. Reagan and Mondale. It's the same bad stuff which politically is, Which speaking, is the nicer? Well, yeah. Yes. Why not vote for the nicest guy? Well, we, got a, we have an underlying fundamental problem in that the federal government is going bankrupt, the U.S. dollar is again in crisis, and we have neither candidate for the presidency that is addressing the reality of that issue. Well, it's even worse than that. You don't even have people coming forward asking who, questions who privately agree with that. They will get uh, in behind their candidate. Yes. You can have private discussions in which uh, various congressmen, uh, some of them, their names you would know if I were to tell you, who will say privately just what you say, but they are not going to come out and challenge Reagan. They're not going to come out and even uh, uh, criticize the position he's taken on the issue. Any that's how... That's... That's how deep this problem is. What's your perspective on Feldstein? Martin Feldstein. Feldstein. Well, the first thing is there's a problem in pronouncing his name. <laughs> or, or, or different points of view. I don't know. I mean, this is... Uh, I don't have much of an opinion on that. Well, we, you've touched upon something interesting. If he works for the government, my philosophy is he should be fired. Well, <laughs> I vote no, you know. Probably <laughs> true. Is he on the government payroll? Well, I hate him. But <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't hate him. But as, as Americans, we grow up amid giant, flourishing euphemisms. <laughs> uh, this is a country which developed a, an Aesopian sort of language. Mm. We very seldom say what we mean. We very seldom level because it's going to get us in trouble with one group or one person or some trend or whatever. It's going to make us seem odd and true, etc. Now, this corruption of language, which leads to confusion of thought, has finally reached the national political stage, where there is absolutely no relevance to the speeches that Mr. Reagan makes to reality, or that Mr. Total Mondale makes, or that any of them make. Now, They're being packaged like soap. Basically. Uh, well, not even not even soap. Well, because even soap, soap is a product. Right. Soap is a product. <laughs> At least it's going to lather. At least uh, you can empirically <laughs> test it. <Yeah. laughs> you're so saying it's like yeah. You're saying so here we are. Uh, Candidates like pillifying with a cloud, right? Well, that's right. We're yeah, uh, we're we're surrounded by double talk. So and how are we going to get to the issues? Well, but Rush has written about this for decades now, and it is the political equivalent of the will to fiction. Yes. Of, of the uh, desire to believe that which is uh, totally it's a untrue. fantasy world. There's a total disconnect. Total. They don't even touch each other mm -hmm. at any point between what Reagan says and what actually occurs. Otto, I think you've made the best statement about our present situation when you commented a while back that no one on the cabinet level in recent years has been fired for doing something wrong only for saying something wrong. Yeah, Jim so Watt and yeah, so forth. Yes, 
the appearance is everything. Reality means nothing. Mm. This is the world of fiction. You well, maintain may, uh, may the facade. You, may I tell you a frightening, horrifying story about our president that I have never talked about publicly? This tape is not going to be listened to by anyone, is it, Rush? <laughs> <laughs> In one of our meetings with Ronald Reagan, we talked with him about his former uh, foreign policy advisor, Richard Allen, who left office uh, because it was revealed that there was a thousand dollars in his safe be, uh, from a Japanese magazine. Evidently Mr. Allen had played a role in getting this magazine an interview with Mrs. Reagan. Mr. Allen also got, I believe, a wristwatch as a gold gift. Watch. A gold watch. <laughs> what was the price of gold then, Ari? Who cares? <laughs> don't anyway, he went. He had to be deep-sixed. He had to be thrown over the side and he left his job. He was forced out. He was de facto fired. Now, Richard Allen was a pretty solid conservative, relatively speaking. And in our meeting, we asked Mr. Reagan, since it seemed sort of piddling, uh, why did he go? Well, Ronald Reagan said, some of his staff, his own staff, Reagan's staff, had talked to some people in the media, and they made it very clear that if Mr. Allen didn't go, that the media would never get off his case. Now, there was a pause, and uh, I didn't say anything else. Uh, I didn't say anything, and I guess the others also paused to see if there was any other reason for letting Mr. Allen go. And Mr. Reagan said nothing else. Now, if what Mr. Reagan told us is true, that in effect he was bullied by the media into throwing them a human sacrifice, that is to my way of thinking, the most corrupt and rotten reason for throwing overboard one of your aides. It had nothing to do, as Mr. Reagan explained it, with any guilt or innocence. It was just the appearance of impropriety. The media would stay on our back, so we had to let him Well, uh, That showed who's in charge in this country, and it ain't Ronald Reagan. Mr. Reagan clearly thinks the media's in charge. Well, when they distribute preview cards and the audience votes against the film, they take it off the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a scary story, though, isn't it? Well, he yeah, is an actor. Now, I'll say yes. one thing for Richard Nixon. He would have never done that. Okay. The minute Richard Nixon would have been told that, oh, they want Dick Scalp? Over my dead body, they'll get it. Because then they make it an issue of you or me. I can't give in on an issue like that, but, but Re Reagan can't. Reagan is a media man. Appearance, yeah. performance is his background as an actor. And this also ties into to the two a anthropological aspects of cultures. They either tend to be pride and, and appearance-oriented, or they tend to be humble and performance-oriented in terms of yes. productivity. Yes. And as I recall, maybe it was your work that talked about uh -huh. as we've moved from a Christian culture to uh, a pagan culture, we've become less productive, we've become less humble, and accordingly we've become more proud and more appearance-oriented. Yes. All right, you have the equivalent of the Renaissance. The state is a work of art. <clears throat> where yes. poets and playwrights and the literati is entertained at court, uh, where the autocrat takes care of all charity uh, and everything else. And appearance then, may, you have to maintain the unifying symbol, the dictator. The dictator in the Renaissance was a fellow who could go out into the crowd and say hello, hello to everybody. He knew their names. He had to be popular. He had to be genial to have their support.
Well, once again, Mr. Reagan even fails that test because in press conferences he has to look at a chart which has the names written for him. <laughs> so he doesn't even measure up to a good, effective autocrat. But the gala, his inauguration, struck me as the coronation of a king and queen. It did have that stately yes. uh, rhythm, didn't it? Yes. Well, I just think that to be an effective leader of this country, there are certain individuals who must be ignored. Their opinion, I mean, the only reason you should ever read the New York Times, the Washington Post, or watch the three networks is that your policy uh, should be the opposite of what they say. And that's, that would be the only reason I would ever allow... Contrary opinion indicator. That's right. That's right. But Mr. Reagan, I remember vividly in 76 now when he announced against Mr. Ford, he made a very good speech. As a matter of fact, I've often said that Mr. Reagan faces no problem at all because of his inability to deliver a good speech. He doesn't face one problem caused by his being a bad speech maker. No, that's no. not the problem. Yeah. But at the press club, he made the statement that there was that the reason he was running was because there was what he called this buddy system in Washington. These people who, who the only thing they really worked for was to merely perpetuate their own jobs. And he named them. It was big labor and big Congress and two or three other big somethings, big media, big unions, something, uh, a couple of other things. And that that's why he wanted to be elected. He wanted to smash this uh, tweed ring operation in uh, and I, I, and I really uh, thought, after three years of the uh, uh, Reagan administration, uh, it is the, this, this buddy system which has really smashed Mr. Reagan. I mean, they have stolen his clothes. He is standing there before us with very little on. And he thinks that this has been a revolution. He thinks he really has cut the budget. He really thinks spending is going down. I mean, you, you could argue that politically, uh, I mean, this is psychotic. He, yes. he really believes this. It's not like he's lying in these speeches. He really thinks that every day in every way, politically speaking, uh, things have gotten better well, since he's his, been in office. His Absolutely untrue. His sincerity presents a <laughs> real obstacle. <laughs> when a man sincerely believes in his errors, uh, then you have a problem in dealing with him. You know, a lot of people are going to be angered, uh, I, I think, by parts of this discussion. Because there's a lot of uh, sentimentality toward Mr. Reagan. Uh, they're going to be uh, reacting as if we had said something nasty about him personally, which I have not done. I really, nothing would have made me happier than to be able to come here, uh, or over the last three years, to have written columns talking about, isn't this marvelous? A, ma a president has done what he said he was going to do. I really, in my heart, I, want, I wanted to write that. I want to say it in speeches, but it is not true. That, that the thing to measure Ronald Reagan by, it seems to me the fair test, is not what I wanted him to do or what Rush or Otto or Ari or, or even Chuck wanted him to do. <laughs> the thing to measure him by is what did Mr. Reagan say he was going to do? Mm -hmm. Th this is the only fire that I've ever tried to hold Ronald Reagan's feet to, the fire that he lighted himself. I mean, here's a man that almost two decades went all over the country telling us precisely what he was going to do about everything and he's done almost none of it. John, as your acid wit puts uh, Washington... Has he insulted me? <laughs> yes. Oh, have no. Acid, <laughs> acid rain. Acid rain. Ill at ease. If the emerging dollar deficit financial crisis reemerges prior to the election this fall, what will be, in your, in your judgment, the Democratic, Republican, and media response to that phenomena at a time when it's the equivalent of, uh, of being caught in your shower. No, I'm just, I'm just laughing because it will be the response uh, 
of, of, of most all the... I mean, it will be the same response uh, to the other realities, uh, which will be to deny it. Or to, or to tell you why, okay, uh, maybe it's there, but it's not that bad, and maybe, and if it, oh, and if it is that bad, it's not going to be for that long, and if it is for that long, then it's not going to be uh, as damaging as you would think. I still think Ronald Reagan would be elected because I just do not think that most people find it plausible that whatever Mr. Reagan's problems are, uh, that Mr. Mondale's going to be an improvement. I certainly don't find that plausible. The Democrats no. seem to think so. They may have a death wish, of course, but uh, they haven't had a very good chorus from which to choose a star. You're uh, uh, pretty sure it'll be Mondale then? I, th I would imagine. Yeah, I, I would imagine too. But although I think uh, uh, this whole Iowa thing, the recent Iowa caucuses, has really been completely overblown. I was looking at some of the statistics. Uh, 20,000 people fewer than 1980 voted this year. Uh, there are something like 1.6 million registered voters in Iowa. 1.6% of them turned out in these caucuses. Well, in 1980... And it's it being hailed as some massive Mondale... Ronald mandate. Reagan was, was considered finished in Iowa because he didn't come out well in 1980. That's right. Even George Bush. Yes. Uh, so that doesn't mean so much, excepting that the pledges of the CIO, etc., etc., uh, add up, and the school teachers uh, add up to an enormous lobby. One factor that was shown to be the case in Iowa is this. It has been said that every election since Wilson's, a decreasing percentage of uh, eligible voters have voted. In other words, there's a growing disillusionment with the political process. So most Americans don't feel there's much hope there. Well, do you think that's something that... Uh uh, is to be applauded by Christians, or what should be the reaction? Is that good or bad, or does it depend? I and if it depends it, on what? I see it primarily as a barometer of a distrust in the state, a growing disillusionment. It's also, to a degree, an indication of irresponsibility but also a belief by the voter in the irresponsibility of the electoral process. So it's not a good index, not something to be happy about. Is there nothing, uh, is there no aspect of it that it could be he considered to be healthy? I mean, one thing that strikes me is that uh, there's a lot about the state, uh, arguably most of what the state's about, that one ought to have no faith in or no yes. trust in. Uh, I'm inclined to think that in the long run it's a good sign because we have here what is essentially an anti-Christian state, an anti-Christian government. There's very little question about that. I agree. And as it loses the support of the people and as Christianity continues its revival among the people, these things come together for our benefit. Mm -hmm. Nature hoards a vacuum. It certainly leaves a vacuum of power to be filled by leadership that represents the will of the people. Right. Uh, John, I've heard from people in Washington that uh, everybody on Capitol Hill gets the Times and that the first thing they do is to open to page three to look at your column and to see what that man is saying. Oh, that's great. Uh, you know, it's the old-time magazine thing. People used to read it in the 30s. It was the only anti-New Deal publication in the country. And they read it just to see what uh, they were going to say. 
You've well, I been hope that's the, true. I you've hope been your the bluntest voice there in Washington. You're the only one there in the lifetime of anyone who has spoken as a Christian. Have you gotten any reaction from the White House about some of your very plain statements with regard to a, a biblical perspective on these issues? Well, I have. Uh, usually it's uh, sort of anonymously. There's someone who will call you up and tell you that uh, you can bet that the president saw something or that something you wrote was the uh, uh, topic of a discussion in a meeting. But you know, really, uh, uh, to God be the glory, Rush, uh, that, that's the strength every Christian has. Is That's not me speaking. I mean, I'm at the computer terminal, but uh, frequently uh, they're literally God's words. I mean, they are direct quotations from Scripture, either to start a column or to make a point. And uh, just a lot of very interesting and amazing things uh, have happened. One time I, I put in a column a direct quote from Scripture, and someone, a friend of mine, Everybody would know his name here. He's a prominent political person in the Reagan administration. Called me up. Uh, he was someone I had not heard of for quite a while. He had not returned about three of my phone calls. And he said that he wanted me to know that he liked my column and everything. But he thought it was a mistake to put my religion in the column. And he just wanted me to know that. And I didn't say anything. And there was a long pause. And, he, and then he said, you know, I'm a Christian, don't you, John? <laughs> and I still didn't say anything. He said, his voice getting a little louder. Well, you know I'm a Christian, though. I said, well, of course I didn't know. How was I to know? Uh, and uh, I said, well, you know, if you're really serious about why, about how you think I shouldn't quote Scripture in the column, I'd like to talk to you about that sometime, but I want a deadline now. I can't talk. I said, maybe we'll have lunch sometime. He said, well, let me get my calendar. We'll make a date now. I thought, wow, this is kind of strange. Here's a guy who wouldn't return the phone calls. Now he wants to make a luncheon date. He's a very busy political type. Make a long story short, we had a... Uh, two-hour lunch downtown at one of the prominent political restaurants, and we talked for about two hours about God and about Christ and our religion. And this was a man I'd known for maybe 14 years, and I had the foggiest notion that he was a Christian. The point is that, as it turned out, my quoting scripture in my column had led him to call me to say I shouldn't do it, which led to a meeting in which I found out he was a Christian, and we both talked about Christ for two hours. And as we parted, he said something, again, uh, sort of a l indicating a little uncomfortableness about being explicit about one's religion, that he wanted me to know, again, that he was a Christian, but he didn't uh, wear it on his sleeve. And I said that uh, he certainly didn't, that, in fact, for 14 years, I didn't even know it was in his wardrobe. <laughs> you, know, you know, John, my work indicates very clearly that harsh economic reality is going to force government, our government, the government that you write about so clearly, to deal with the religion of Christianity, which is based in historical, economic, factual reality. I disagree. I disagree. This is the point I made earlier. History is littered with the corpses of civilizations that were smashed by reality, that reality didn't wake them up one iota. It was just like an oncoming train. Again, you think, well, when will that other train... We've all seen that old clip from that old movie of the two engines colliding, and you always wonder, well, one of them is bound to see the other one. This cannot happen. That I mean, two engines just don't run together at full speed, do they? Well, of course they do. They have, literally, uh, and also historically speaking in terms of civilization. I wish the government would wake up, but I must report to you, direct from Washington, that I see almost no evidence that any part of the government is even remotely becoming awake. Okay. Your work is literally... I hope I'm wrong. Is, 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 is the light 
on, on, a dark, on a dark night on the hill. They can be seen for miles in terms, in terms of the darkness that pervades our nation's capital. And I think, I think if anyone's got a, a good shot at, at being able to explain these things uh, during times when minds are confused, in times of crisis, that, that cer certainly you have an incumbent duty to do that. Oh, and we'll I continue to do I couldn't that. agree with you more. The only thing I'm saying is that uh, uh, for me to perform my duty or for any of us to perform our duties uh, it is not necessarily to say that it will turn out the way we that we want it to do. But but I must say that the way it ultimately turns out is of less concern to me than than that I do my duty. That's what I'm very concerned about. But we've got to have uh, godly men. We've got to have Christian men and women coming forward uh, to speak in an unselfconscious, in a shameless way about the faith being the basis of their beliefs. And I just see all too little of that uh, as a new Christian. Well, yes. We, what, is the, what is the phrase? We combat principalities and powers. Ephesians 6.12. And wickedness in high places. And if the Christian ceases to do that, his Christianity is uh, burying, buried in the ground. Well, I just told you a second ago about the guy I've known for 14 years who maintains he's a strong Christian, and I never knew about it. And I'm telling you, friends, uh, if you're a strong Christian, uh, it will not take me 14 years to find out about it. And I just yeah. shudder to think how many other people consider themselves to be Christians who have never said anything about it to anybody. They've never written one line about it or they've never broadcast one line about it. Because if you're a secret Christian, then you ain't a Christian. Rush, this is that, uh, an expression of that schizophrenia yes. between Christianity and reality that goes back mm -hmm. to what, Aristotle? We really should yeah, do a show. Box, and we're running to the end now, but we, yeah, we really should do a show on this because I have a lot of uh, uh, personal experiences and strong feelings about the extent to which uh, people who consider themselves Christian conservatives have in fact been conservative Christians. Yes, well John I think that's a good idea and we shall plan to do it sometime later. Perhaps uh, in the fall Good. Uh, sometime we can get both of you back here if not Excellent. sooner. And. Uh, by that time, we will know some things we sure that will. Uh, God has in store for us. Meanwhile, we're very grateful to you that you are here and that you have given us this time. And we know you're in a difficult spot there, and uh, our national Sodom and Gomorrah, but... Uh, <laughs> It's nice to have a voice there for a change yes. that, that, that speaks of, of, of Christianities and religions, uh, a relationship to government. Yes, it's it's, it sure it's new for us to have someone by the way, in prominence the, uh, being the, able to express things as clearly as you do to the establishment. The election disproves anything that I've said on this tape. You are to destroy the master. <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> well, our time is up. Thank you both Thank you for being here. And God bless you and your work.